Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. Yeah, I, I recall having an interview with Chinese representative and the economic uh, council counselor, in fact, of uh, in Costa Rica, and uh, he was uh, complaining about election cycles uh, because it seemed to threaten to undo deals that had been struck or with with China. They wanted stability, regularity. I think that the Chinese will. I know that the Chinese will look at a at a Bolivia and say, you know what? All of them, every single one of them, will say, well, that's they're living in standards that we used to live in. Yeah, we recognize that. We can see market opportunity. I have heard so many policy figures say exactly that. Not just in Latin America, in Africa. In Southeast Asia, so wagging your finger, running, you know, flying around on a little mission to say, "Don't tut tut, don't do this," you might endanger your interests. Is very interesting, but uh, we're not going to, you know, do much because you don't offer anything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode twenty-nine of Triumph Connects. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have heard about Chinese firms and Chinese government involvement and investment in Africa. For example, as part of a strategy to secure the resources needed to play and to continue to play their leading role in the economy and industry of the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, China has really purchased quite a few mining rights, established mines, built refineries for rare earth elements in multiple locations across Africa. And this is just one of many different forms of involvement in the continent. But did you know that the annual amount of traded goods between China and Latin America, as well as foreign direct investment, is about twice as much between China and Latin America as it is between China and Africa? If we look at Chinese development loans, Latin America has received more of these loans than Africa has. Now, it has been clear that for more than a century, at least, to understand Latin America, you had to have an understanding of the involvement of the United States in the area. But it is now impossible, I think, to understand the Latin America of today, its economy and politics, without an understanding of the growing role of China in the region. Looked at through the lens of the U.S.-China competition and conflict, this is a real major development. Historically, the U.S. has reacted forcefully and negatively to what it saw as interference in the Americas by any other country. Will that continue, or will the recent neglect or disinterest of the U.S. to Latin America continue? Will this neglect create more space and opportunity for an even greater Chinese influence? And how will, if at all, eventually the U.S. respond? To help us understand these issues and others, I'm delighted today to be joined in this episode by Professor Chris Alden of the, of the London School of Economics. And for those of you in Trium, a regular contributor. Chris is the deputy head of the International Relations Department at the LSE. He's the director of LSE Ideas and a research associate with the South Africa Institute of International Affairs. Chris's newest book, co-authored with Alvaro Mendez, entitled China and Latin America, Development, Agency, and Geopolitics, was published earlier this year and forms the basis of much of our discussion that follows. Before this book, Chris authored or co-authored a number of different books, including 
Apartheid's Last Stand, The Rise and Fall of the South African Security State, Mozambique and the Construction of the New African State, China in Africa, Land Liberation and Compromise in Southern Africa, and The South and World Politics. Chris is one of the world's leading experts of Chinese involvement in the Global South, and it was really a pleasure to sit down with him for a wonderful discussion on this topic. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Alden. So, Chris Alden, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thanks very much. Good to be here. It's great to have you. You know, look, um, after writing perhaps the text on the scale and scope and consequences of Chinese investment in Africa, uh, you turned your attention, along with your co-author, Alvaro Mendez, to China's involvement in Latin America. And there's been a new book this year come out entitled China and Latin America Development Agency and Geopolitics. And I can recommend this highly to our listeners. It's a fascinating account. I certainly learned loads from the book. And while most people, I think, are aware of Chinese massive investments in Africa over the last, say, 40 years or so, I, I was surprised to learn in the last couple of years, Chinese investment into Latin America at around 450 billion plus or minus is nearly twice as that into Africa during the same time period. And I wonder as a start, maybe you could help us put this into some sort of historical context. How has China been involved through Latin America through time? Because in the book, you make these really interesting arguments that actually the relationship goes back to the beginning of the kind of Spanish colonial era. And uh, maybe you could give us a kind of potted version of 400 years of China in Latin America. So I think for me, that that was one of the one of the things that really interested me. I had done work on Africa, as you've said, and when I, and I'd worked on in Brazil in particular in the past, and so I had some sense of Brazil and 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 travel a little bit in other parts uh, of the continent of of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but it was really um, as I dug deeper into this project, I realized there was this blind spot hmm. in in the Chinese Latin American story that just absolutely, for some reason, people were not talking about. Uh, and it was, I, I think, Euro, it was a sort of Eurocentricism and, and the like. But underlying the, the, the outreach, the whole, if you like, the whole driver and purpose of uh, Spanish and, and Portuguese as well, uh, colonialism, the search for access to markets in Asia, which principally in their mind meant China. Mm. There were spice islands. There was a sort of marginal market really in Japan, but really was China was the prize. And of course, the Portuguese uh, went one direction principally and, and uh, the, the Spanish went the other. The argument was that at least the 200 uh, years, first years, it was all about uh, Latin America as a source uh, for silver that could be traded with China and and sometimes other countries there, uh, and then um, in return for exports of of porcelain, uh, which was highly prized and had not just elite but was moving into the the middle classes. In fact, the clearest indication of that was the, the rise of places, production sites, uh, deft and Wedgwood, uh, and in imitation. There was, that's how much of a market there was. Yeah, yeah. This really was the shape of, of, of global, of the global economy. 
uh, and in that respect, China and Latin America are sort of joined at the hip. They exist because of the, 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 their form and their in in the modern economy is a byproduct of that effort by yeah. European entrepreneurs to get to that market. Super interesting because you know it set the stage. I mean, it was kind of an early extractive industry for finished goods, and um, and we see some echoes of that definitely today. So I, I thought that that part of the book was was really interesting to put into that deep historical context. Can I jump in with one more element sure. too, which I thought was so right. So uh, after in when the nineteenth century begins, uh, we see newly independent uh, Latin American states, South American states, and they, like all developing countries, uh, they, they sit on resources, but they don't really have the means of access, and they certainly don't have the finance. Um, uh, they lack the technical expertise, and, and so they in, engage in a, a infrastructure building. And that, build, that infrastructure build reinforces another side of the China-Latin America, which is to say the, the import of of um, laborers from China, so the roads, mm. the canals, and this sort of thing have uh, are built in part, and this happens in North America as well, but uh, are built with uh, a large large uh, support from uh, Chinese uh, laborers from South China and the like, uh, who themselves become part of the first the communities that that at various cities in countries like Peru, um, in Cuba. Uh, in other places that that uh, we see to this day, so that was another element that I didn't expect in as I sort of went through this and and the research over the years. So that was a, a very uh, very interesting too. No, absolutely, it gives it a flavor because you you have populations, historic populations of people of Chinese origins in these places, and and that and that affects what happens today. And I I'm with you. I, I think that there's just 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 giant hole. People People don't pay attention to this very much. I can't. I mean, the things that you see written about China and Africa—they're numerous and really well researched. And as you said, there's this kind of big glaring hole. We don't know that much, or there's not that many people looking into this into this uh, issue. And and I'm glad to have you here with us today because I, I I think your book goes away of plugging some of that big space. So that's great. Um, so if that's historically, if we can kind of think now, just kind of broad strokes. Where where is China involved in Latin America now? Where's the majority of investment going into? What are is it is it uh, is it a mixture of pure extraction or is it are they investing in kind of things higher up the uh, value chain? If you were to describe uh, briefly what's the characteristics of Chinese investment now in Latin America, how would you describe that? The, the bulk of it's in in. Uh... Uh, extractive resources and the like. If you talk about it, sort of on the order of, of uh, country by country varies, of course, mm. but uh, um, sort of seventy percent in a broad to give it a broad number, um, uh, ag an aggregate. But um, that that also disguises, if if you like, the the areas that that there are other areas specific to certain countries. I mean, we talked about. We can talk about Costa Rica and the kind of investment in, uh, in uh, taking up the Intel uh, role of the assembly and all of that that was involved in, in uh, uh, a part of the Costa Rican uh, economy. So you'll find there'll be technical areas, there'll be areas of infrastructure investment, uh, which is really loan, uh, resource-backed loans in most cases. But yeah. uh, that was designed, so the Chinese have, have taken a position in that. 
in countries like Ecuador, it's a very big presence. They play a, a, a large role in it. In uh, other countries, they're uh, more marginal. Um, so, so the patterns, and I think the, the larger comment I would make about this is that if China and Africa was the starting point for a, a global China, which, which uh, starts earlier, mm. uh, some companies we see begin to break, um, sort of cut their teeth in, in parts like countries like Sudan, Angola, and uh, South Africa, that uh, many of those same companies end up in um, Chile, in Peru, in right. uh, Brazil, uh, and they do different, they do the similar things, but then there's there are more opportunities in middle-income uh, economies. There's more pockets of sectoral expertise. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, uh, and the Chinese recognize that market, so automobile manufacture, um, assembly rather, uh, becomes a part of what they do, which they which is not not as well represented in the African case. So let's dive into that a little bit. Um, and and in the book, you have this great kind of way of three ma- of introducing three major themes to help us as the reader understand what's going on. And these are kind of development agency and and geopolitics. And what I want to first start is kind of from a Latin American perspective. And, and of course, there's huge variety across the continents of, of countries. But if if we think about the development phase, as I was reading your book, I kind of was framing it in the question of, well, why, why would Latin American countries be interested in attracting Chinese involvement and investment? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, because it seemed on the face of it, you know, over the last century, Many Latin American countries kind of have struggled to. It seems like they they wanted to shift their own domestic economies away from dependence on extraction, and have tried in different ways to move up the value chain. But you describe in the book uh, a kind of Chinese infrastructure led growth model, which it it sounds like that that kind of was pioneered and developed in Africa. But you it, it, at one point you say it's kind of a neo extractivism. Uh, with the potential to undermine domestic industry and production of finished goods. And I was just wondering, can you tell tell us how this is manifest in Latin America? So the the idea is that, you know, ch- if China both doubles down on the extractive part of the industry and floods the market with cheaper developed goods, then isn't Latin America falling into this same extractivist trap that they've been trying to climb out of over the last 40 or 50 years? Yeah, that's that's one of the the spillover effects of of the way the deals that have been done and the 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 opening of markets to to Chinese uh, merchandise uh, goods and and things like that. So um, I think that that the I mean it, implied in that is aren't the Chinese undermining uh, and their Latin American counterparts aren't uh, uh, undermining the very sort of sustainable model of growth or or knock, uh, knocking the the ladder uh, that had been climbed knocking it back out pushing down and knocking the it back again uh, exactly the exactly Latin American, um uh feed as it were um i think that uh a couple of things here there is some strategic approach you know certain secure food security resource access and security that can can be uh, seen in policy documents and in utterances of of the party over time which can lead us to believe that there are some you know overarching drivers for reaching out to countries that have 
an abundance of resources that, that China itself might not have it. Hmm. But as to how these things are actually done and in, in, in the like, I mean, they're companies seeking markets. They're they're making their their um, uh, if if uh, market economy status and access free trade uh, agreements are signed as they have been with with four uh, economies in Latin America, then then what I think you see is. Um, uh, the power of China's comparative and competitive advantage here being brought to bear on on economies that had been uh, not, not they hadn't been confronted by the China of the 1990s, early 2000s that had that had this position. China, of, of course, itself is trying to move up the value chain is, is sure. reasonably successful. So you sort of, you know, their effort to position themselves in global markets in ways that enhance their their ability to improve uh their their um standing their and their position within the global production and uh, and services and all of that sort of thing is um also has driven them to take positions which can be com- directly competitive to the to uh industrial industrial developments in Brazil in yeah. Argentina in other places like that. I think the typical pattern is that Argentine, Brazilian, or, or South American, um, the, the big lead or Mexican um, companies are, are largely un- unhappy or feel challenged by Chinese goods uh, entering and, and competing head to head, but that you see uh, gains in terms of access to development finance that that governments in Latin America had not had access to. Yeah. And so that that's where it was. I think diversification is 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 as you said at the beginning there is uh, the the key driver here. We we want other players and we want to open up to Asian markets. And those I would also say that the Pacific facing countries, the Chile's, the Peru's, uh Mexico is an interesting different slightly different uh case in this instance but but um these ones have have recognized that their future market growth is is to be found across the pacific and they and in china has to be part of that and so they 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 very much embrace um working with uh china and and enabling uh, uh trade relation to uh, to flourish trade and investment relationship yeah i mean it's i, I th- to me it was an interesting question because first of all it um, because of the different the different parts of each of the polities react in different ways. And so the domestic politics, I think you do, again, a great job in the book saying for each each country, it has its own domestic politics and different coalitions of players that are in favor or against. But what, one of the things that I thought over an overarching theme was that often China, it seems that they get, you, you, you kind of wrote that they get a little bit worried that Latin American states believe that they're mm-hmm. in this kind of partnership for development, and China is going like, no, 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 please don't, don't think that. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is not about a deeper relationship. This is about us having very specific business and uh, needs from you, and this is a kind of clear limit to Chinese interest in the region. And it seems like many times China is. Kind of trying very hard to signal to these countries, not all countries, but some of them, saying, "Look, we are not your development partner. We we are here to make money out of extraction." It seems like, and they're trying to 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 
So you get this image of a country, a Latin American country saying, this is going to be great. We're going to have access to their markets. We're going to be able to develop. And uh, and uh, this is a part of a bigger picture and China pushing back. Did I get that right? Is that, is that, is that, was that what you were trying to, the message you were trying to give in the book? I, I think that um, it was, it was certainly the case in the first phase up to about 2016, and that, that in that period, uh, China was a little bit overwhelmed. And this was especially insofar as they started to engage with countries like Venezuela, um, uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, where there was a was kind of an appetite that was part of the pink tide and the sort of rise of, of uh, more left-leaning governments there. Uh, and in the, the, the responsiveness of these countries um chavez in venezuela is a very good example of that it was not it was not a priority country there was a very good working from the 1970s uh, enabled uh, uh under um lula but uh, commercial and small commercial and scientific cooperation with brazil that was the that was there for quite a long time smaller relationships around the continent but uh, uh for chavez he he sees in china something that um, there's an ideological affinity that perhaps is a little misconstrues the history of China as in its contemporary period and all that. But he jumps on that. And others, if you read the others of of uh, that uh, of the leftist tradition, read a China through their experience of, of or their understanding of China. The Chinese were like, this is we have a it's great that you're there. We want to do a deal, but we're not here to save you we're here to you know may, do business as you've said and i think yeah. that that sort of let's lower the bar here let's lower the energy yeah but, uh, over time that began to change and i think xi jinping in particular had a different take on what was what uh he he's how he saw china's position globally and towards the region Okay, so let's pick up on that when we talk about the geopolitics, because I think that you see a, a shift in, in, in about that time as you document. Um, but let's let's go one step back because you mentioned that there was um, this kind of trade-off. The deal structures were often, you know, access to markets, et cetera, in exchange for some sort of financing. And one of the things that Latin America, again, over the last forty or fifty years, has had these various fights against debt traps um and uh where they they become kind of captive states to because they they have such heavy debts that they can't necessarily service and do you think this is it's interesting to me do you think this massive amount of investment in latin american debt is it is it more dangerous for china do you think or is it more dangerous for the latin american states the the narrative that um, certainly comes out of uh, Washington, the World Bank, and and the like has been, and European head um, capitals has been the last few years very much about it's dangerous for it's a burden for the recipient countries. Mm -hmm. So it's the debt trap narrative, and they they point to um, somewhat misconstruing what happened in Sri Lanka, but in a certain way it doesn't. The details don't matter. It's the kind of outcome that matters as sort of port. It was port seizure, uh, uh, but in fact, facilitated by the Sri Lankan government just trying desperately to take the debt burden off itself uh, and off its books. Um, but but irrespective, that narrative has been a powerful narrative. 
Um, and I think that actually what has been missing in this whole discussion and debate, it may even have been missing at the, the top end in, um, in Beijing, um, but certainly Chinese officials at, at a, mi a middle level recognize this problem. You know, you're putting, you're lending to countries on the basis of, of a set of assumptions of, of uh, an ability to repay. Um, it, it anticipates a stable environment. Uh, all things will stay the same. Energy mm. prices won't spike uh or won't collapse depending on if the nation the the nature of your of the the host the recipient economy and and how it affects them uh there won't be a, a war in in a, a part of europe and that will have an impact all of these things uh you know play out which of course that's what uh, a solid risk assessment would be you may, yes. may take account of these things china in 19 in 20 19 um effectively suspended lending it was all the more so uh to to latin america to other parts of the global south and and uh, the like and it was of course this was a little bit um uh missed because of the because of the covid crisis which which suspends all action and while mm -hmm. we talk about that debt rescheduling but uh now that we're in a, a you know relative better position, certainly a better position in that area, lending is still uh, very, very weak. And that it's it's part of, in fact, most of what China has been doing has been uh, lending um, sort of bridging loans to to Latin American, African, and other indebted countries since two, uh, 20, 2021. Okay. $260 billion worth of, of, of loans from that period to the present just to, to help these uh countries get uh, stay afloat in this right. setting so so in their own interest and because staying afloat means they continue to pay on their own debts now so yeah, yeah. so just to summarize so the point is just that the creditor the the story of the debt issue the lending issue as a as a model has been told much uh, in terms of this entrapment thing i think that uh, uh, you know uh, you you loan the uh, you, you you borrow um a hundred dollars from the bank, you know, there, and you can't pay it back. You're in trouble. A hundred thousand, they're in trouble. So yeah. I think we're on the latter case. On the latter, I mean, it seems that way. And then these bridge bridged loans are, in some ways, an acknowledgement. I hadn't recognized that in 2019 that they pulled back the lending, and so this is now kind of a, ma a management of a of a slow boiling crisis in some ways, because mm -hmm. instead of an expansion of trying to use debt as a way of of control. Now, what what's interesting? Again, one of the things I found interesting in your last book on on China and Africa was some of the strings that were attached to these uh, initial debt and financing uh, um, agreements. I just wondered, do we see the same pattern of these lendings tied to the use of things like Chinese labor, Chinese equipment, Chinese companies? Is has debt been used before? I guess this 2019 kind of mor uh, moratorium has it was it used as a way of uh, kind of a bridgehead into getting uh, Chinese labor equipment and firms into the markets of these countries? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, basically, and I think the Latin American case you can see it in Bolivia, for instance, and the, as opposed to the African case where there was always some discontent there amongst local communities, certain segments of the society saying, why aren't, why aren't there local suppliers here? Where's our, you know, surely 
we should be subcontracted to to do certain kinds of work here. Mm. So those those debates occurred, and and there was adjustment in some instances uh, to allow for a little little bit of that in Kenya, for instance, the building the railway. Um, after uh, a year or two into the project, they um, uh, they renegotiated terms and, and brought more local supplies, local contractors to do certain activities. Uh, Latin America has a much stronger trade union tradition, has mm. a much more um, active, reasonably well-resourced, deep communities of interest, environmental. It's, it's a link with the indigenous uh, um, communities as well that are in some of the areas of of um latin america that have that are um you know the forested areas of the amazon or in the yeah. mountain areas of, of um, minerals and the like so all of these elements uh came together and i think really uh were surprised to the chinese the degree to which they could not operate in the same way as mm-hmm. they had expected um it's one of the reasons why the 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 era after 2004, which really was the the starting point of a very active uh, investment and lending regime into um, Latin America. Um, After 2004, we see um, grand projects, mega projects. We're going to build a railway uh, across from, uh, you know, across the continent, which had always been spoken of. Um, we're going to rehabilitate and, and create new ports that, uh, you know, modern ports along the coastal Pacific, et cetera, and, and in, in um, Jamaica as well, in the Caribbean. Yeah. So all of these big projects are there uh, because at that stage, the, the vision was that big and leaders responded to those, but um, uh, local leaders responded to them. But, uh, you know, there were very, very uh, substantive local interests that were trade unions in Brazil mm. saying, we're not going to do this. Why are Chinese, why are Chinese firms going to be brought in to do this? Why are Chinese laborers going? That's not in, that's not the playbook that we operate from. And so that that pushback is one of the reasons there, there have been certain countries and certain occasions where we see projects that never really they're on the books, but they don't they they they're announced, but they never really are um come come to be realized so yeah i mean i want to pick up that theme a little in a little bit in, when we talk about agency because i think this is super important i think that as you document in the book that china if they thought that it was going to be the same sort of domestic polity that they had in a, a, a kind of experience in africa they they got a very different kind of experience when they started uh, interacting in Latin America. And one of the things that threw up um, in in this in this discussion was, you know, as China gets more investment in fixed assets in Latin America, they begin to see, we begin to see, I think, some direct and non-direct uh, involvement in the domestic and political structures. They become interested in protecting their fixed assets. And and in some ways, the the stereotype of Chinese investment is, you know, kind of no strings attached. Um, we, you know, what you do domestically is up to you. We aren't going to interfere with your uh, with your um, domestic polity. But it seems interesting to me, and, and tell me whether I got this right, that you have this kind of Africa model that's used in Latin America. You start to get kickback 
from the domestic groups. You have some uh, uh, large investments in some fixed assets. Then those fixed assets start to become in danger from di different uh, domestic uh, political pressures. And suddenly this no strings attached policy starts to become a little bit frayed at the sides because now they're starting to directly intervene because they want to protect their their investments. Is is that is that story, is that narrative, does that sound familiar to you? Is it is, is it what you think is happening or is there elements of that that are wrong? I think that's generally true. I mean, each case will offer slight variations on that theme, but I think it's this this walking into a, a region uh, where um, I had a pretty good idea of what ought to work based on experience in Africa. So um, the responsiveness of, of uh, governments in Latin America was quite, quite uh, as we said a moment ago, was in some ways even more than they had expected. And that, mm. that, and they went in without a sense of risk. You know, they hadn't they hadn't factored in um, because they didn't know the region. They didn't know the the local politics. They didn't have a sense of the history of a particular uh, capital versus the periphery sort of thing within yeah. within a, uh, or the sector, a given sector. And all of that came as a surprise. Now, the Chinese and that is part of the agency story when that, that China went in with one set of assumptions, engages with elites. We're very excited to see investment and diversification meets broadly their their interests, and then perhaps more specifically, yes, we'd like to build a we we have a, a telecommunication communication sector that 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 needs investment, uh, or we have ports that need rehabilitation, and China seems to offer that. Mm. Um, and remember, this is the big uh, com commodity super cycle era when this is all yeah. happening. Yeah, so the the. The uh, assumptions, for some reason, every cycle seems to have the same sort of trajectory in terms of the minds of decision makers. They seem to think it's going to last uh, longer than it is, not maybe not forever, but and yeah. they take decisions which uh, uh, which um, hold implications for the the next people in office, sort of thing. So yeah, this time it's going to be different. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I I think uh, you know you you mentioned. Um, Bolivia, in a, in a sense, and you have Evo Morales, and I think for those of you interested, that part of the book, and I have a a, a confession to make, having lived in Bolivia back in the early eighties, uh, I have an, a special place in my heart for the country. But it, you can, you, I could just see this story playing out. You have Evo, who is very kind of feels this kind of ideological, I don't know, kinship at least with the with the approach. Um, and uh, and then China makes these investments, and then they say, "Wait a minute, this is what we want," and uh, but this is what we don't want. So then China has to say, "Wait a minute, we aren't we aren't your brothers. We're here for specific things," um, mm -hmm. and and a complete underestimation that Evo Morales, while leader of the country and and strong in many many ways, is sitting on top of a roiling, complex, conflictful unstable political system that has been that way for a very long time and not really prepared for the very quick shifts in power and uh, that can happen in that kind of system i mean that was that was my sense and um it's a, it's a kind of um metaphor of of a lot of the involvements in in the other countries yeah i, I recall having an interview with uh 
Chinese representative and the economic uh, council counselor, in fact, of uh, in Costa Rica, and uh, he was uh, complaining about election cycles, not 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 for uh, because it seemed to threatened to undo deals that were, had been struck or what have you with with China. They wanted stability, regularity, and that was a you know it was an interesting. Very particularist. It wasn't said in an ideological way. It was no. really about we can't. As he was thinking as an investor, saying, "So what happens when a, the next uh, political leadership come to power and they reverse things, or at least talk about it, or change the tax code, or yeah, indeed." So that's again speaks to the naivete of this this very big uh, economic player that, that, uh, really cut its teeth domestically and in the near, near abroad of Southeast and East Asia and doesn't, uh, you know, goes to these other parts of the world and with a set of assumptions, expectations, and, uh, uh, re uh slowly or perhaps more swiftly begins to realize the game is played differently. There are other factors here we need to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. In, in some ways, it's comforting to know that other big countries also fall into the same trap. I mean, uh, we <laughs> see China with their own assumptions. You see the U.S. in different parts of the world endlessly having to relearn that the rest of the world isn't just yearning to be like the U.S., you know, so um, <laughs> and and being kind of forever surprised in that. And it takes us, I guess, to the the, 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 the session on the section on agency or the theme. And, um, you know, historically, bilateral relationships with the U.S. have been by far the most important uh, factor, uh, international factor shaping domestic politics in Latin America. I mean, U.S. involvement, both overt and covert in Latin America through time, is very well documented. And when you talk about the role of agency in the context of China and Latin America, is, is a big part that's driving this that countries simply see that We'll be better off if there's two people or two entities vying for influence in 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 our in our world, and and if we can play those across each other, that we'll be in a better position. We not we aren't completely reliant on the U.S. Is does that explain a lot of the kind of opening up to China's uh, involvement in Latin America? I think so. I think that that's it's a kind of um, policy almost a policy uh, nostrum that all governments will want to seek out more you know they don't want to be reliant and dependent on one one source they they want um if it's put into foreign policy terms they talk about strategic autonomy mm. spaces that you can carve out boundaries you can push back a little bit and that's best done uh so people write in this tradition say by um by uh, diversifying uh, partners, you can gain greater leverage or at least improve your your standing and status. And so, you know, the foreign policy. If you look at the foreign policy documents of these countries, that that's often accompanies the the Brazilian, for instance, strategic autonomy as a kind of watchword for this balancing. Even though they are, the different governments have. Um, Come quite or, or in Argentina as well. They sometimes have been embracing the United States. So in the early '90s, it was a kind of heyday of the neoliberalism that uh, yeah. and all of that stuff. And it's the decade thereafter we begin to see um, responding to to China in, in I think through that lens. 
Um, I think also that agency, there, there may be an ideological hue, which we already talked about a moment ago, that drives that too. And I, if I think of Lula in Brazil, um, there, it wasn't just about that. There was a feeling, uh, for instance, that Brazilian aspirations uh, for development were more likely to be achieved in working with the Chinese than, uh, than, than the U.S., why? Because um, the Chinese were, as a developing country, was already familiar with the challenges of development. It's it's three generations ago, four generations ago for the United States. It doesn't think like a developing country. Yeah, it doesn't see a value in in entering a market where market size is small. The income, the the, the sort of per capita income is, you know, uh, is a, at a certain level and and the like. I mean, I'm saying it. The United States. Obviously, it's, these are firm level decisions, but sure. uh, at the same time, I think that the Chinese will. I know that the Chinese will look at a look at a a uh, at a Bolivia, and say, you know what, all of them, every single one of them will say, well, that's they're living in standards that we used to live in. Yeah, we recognize that. We can see market opportunity. Others will go and say, well, you know, the things are not working quite as as it is back at home. <laughs> the the you know the U.S. or the Europeans, so I mm. think that there, there's an openness. India, by the way, it's not covered in the book, but India is also uh, uh, increasingly positioning itself in these markets, and and the same I think logic is there. An emerging economy can yeah. see opportunities that 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 established ones don't, and 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 uh, put forward different development models, um, and and you have this at the same time. It seems in that Latin America, which is interesting and again documented in the book, you have this at the same time that more traditional kind of neoliberal, uh, I don't know, coalitions within these states um, were had the dream of kind of an expanded NAFTA or some sort of FTAA, and the idea was that this would be a U.S. led um, free trade zone that this would tie these countries' economies, give them economic opportunity um, in a in a kind of free trading, as you said back in the early two thousands, kind of um, uh, way of looking at the world. So at the same time, you have countries like China and and India uh, coming in and saying we we understand, we see market opportunity, and we know what it's like to try to bring large amounts of our population out of poverty, you also have at the same time a rejection from the North saying, we are not expanding NAFTA. We are no longer interested in these trade agreements. So it seemed like in the book that you document that they, they kind of the natural coalition that might be against domestically the inclusion of more Chinese and or perhaps Indian involvement was undercut by the domestic politics in the US that led to a failure of any appetite at all to expand NAFTA uh, or into other into other uh, uh, countries is it, did I get that right is that is that is that correct more or less yeah yeah I think I mean it was in, in a way it was captured as well and I know this spills a little bit towards uh towards the geopolitics as well but there was there was just a a lack of um the Latin Americans, Continually spoke. We, I was myself and Alvaro Mendez were were doing lots of interviews across capitals with with uh, uh, existing sitting foreign ministers, economic ministers, and, and so on and so forth, um, as well as uh, retired ones. And the the thing that 
came across in, in almost all of our conversations was, well, the United, the United States seems to have turned it, it's either neglecting us or it's mm. deliberately turning it, uh, its back through through uh, um, uh, not extending NAFTA and, and in fact, re renegotiating it by 2016 onward. Um, mm. And uh, they, they they were, there was an opening, even having been pushed back, <laughs> said yeah. that we, we want, uh, that we have development needs, they're immediate, <laughs> We can't wait, and we need to. We we'll find uh, uh, someone else to work with if that's the case. And in, in you know, there's an open door really for China in countries that might otherwise take Colombia very close uh, mm. to the United States. Um, had had really not the civil the 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 war had to come to an end, but uh, but uh, now it's uh, signing up to uh, Chinese infrastructure projects like all the others. Mm. And this is even in the era of geopolitics, as opposed to you know, an era of utter neglect by by or systematic neglect by by the United States and and to a degree Europe as well. And and as you said, not only neglect but outright rejection. So um, you mm -hmm. had a when you had the change of the administration with the Trump administration of saying you know that then there was almost no scope for additional involvement like this and it's it's interesting because it's one can argue the benefits of nafta or the ftaa or what whatever it is you're looking at but one sometimes i think hidden cost is of course if you don't if these countries cannot if they go if you go if they go to their your shop front and your shop front is closed they go off to the next shop uh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not like their needs go away. The needs are still there. And if there's another shop open, that's what they'll do. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's very difficult to capture that cost uh, of the mm -hmm. of the stopping of that expansion of free trade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would have been the preferred uh, avenue for very many uh, components of of the different Latin American societies. They were all set to do so. And and. Uh, in the absence of that, as you say, the needs don't don't go away, and so one one looks around and say, "Okay, you you that sounds you know possible. Let's do a deal." And there's so. even, I mean, because again, if we if we think about it, there is so much historical and cultural affinity across the Americas, North and South America. Mm -hmm. There's large scale mm -hmm. immigration in in United States from countries in Latin America. Uh, there, there, it is much closer culturally than than a than a Chinese approach, and I think we see a couple times you 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 document in the book these kind of clashes sometimes between local political interests, local interest groups, and um, and a Chinese kind of approach to doing to doing business. And I wonder you you have a couple examples from. Like environmental movements, uh, indigenous groups, uh, and say domestic responses to large-scale influx of Chinese immigration that are concentrated tend to be concentrated in certain regions. Can you give us a, maybe an example of? Can you do you have an anecdote where you saw the kind of cultural clash uh, play out uh, between uh, what how Chinese expected things to be, and as an illustration of how the friction is higher than you would have expected with let's say interaction with the US um but still they 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 the the investment continues on the chinese side so so maybe an example of one of these conflicts that you write about in the book that that maybe will help us understand 
the cultural friction involved? I think that um, in the even in the earliest days, if you look at the one of the the key um, starter investments back in the early '90s, there was a, was a uh, an investment in the iron ore sector in Peru, and uh, the um, local community had initially very pleased to to have a, an ailing state enterprise that was uh, now had been privatized and that there was someone there to snap it up to get it going again. So employment opportunities and the like. And however, um, the, the the manner of doing business, the absence of consultations, believing they had the the national support. So this is company behavior, Chinese yeah. state-owned company behavior. Um to uh, clear a particular piece of land to do and, and get the villagers out and go uh, go ahead and, and uh, uh, build what they needed and wanted for, for production and uh, that kind of thing. The expectation that uh, hours to be worked would be at the China, you know, equivalent to how a Chinese worker would work. But all of these things, which took no notice of, of of culture as as represented in in uh, communities, as culture as represented in terms of um, formalized through labor regulations, as concerns for uh, uh, local environment and and the likes. These all they, they really ran roughshod on, over that. And so the particular uh, uh, shogun um, iron ore uh, example I'm thinking of uh, became a, a matter of of clashes. It just devolved into you know, physical clashes between uh, company officials and and, uh, and uh, local community. And that sort of replic that that very early example sort of is replicated across many of these resource extractive enterprises. There are some examples that uh, show learning, show changes to policy. Peru, another Peruvian investment eight, eight, 10 years later, uh, very much more consultative, tries to underwrite movement. Of, it still needs to move people away out of a particular area, but they then engage uh, in, in a way that uh, replicates kind of um, uh, CSR sort of approaches that you would see uh, Western firms. I, again, I, I just a, a point of um, caution here. Uh, not all Chinese for, firms behave badly. Western, no, I mean, no. if you look at the record of... of U.S., Canadian, European, in 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 similar in in the same sectors, it can be good, it can be bad. But there've been yeah you know, some quite uh, quite outstandingly bad uh, conduct as well. So just yeah. to, to you know to be sure that our listeners understand that this this is not a wholesale uh, condemnation of the Chinese behavior, as it were. So, no, I, I that's a super great point and. Um, we and we've also been talking about the Chinese as a as a mm-hmm. unified, rational actor, instead of a myriad of different firms uh, pursuing different ends, uh, meshed with but apart from the state, and um, that there's no some grand architecture of 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 uh, policy, or to the extent that there is, it, it is manifest through. Uh, the different interests of the groups that are there to implement that strategy, I think. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it's a nice uh, kind of segue to talking about those geopolitics. And um, I think what's really interesting in in the book, you sketch out this argument that, at least as I read it, you tell me whether I get it right, that as China started to ramp up its investment in Latin America, 
um, quite substantially. The U.S. kind of saw this as evidence of kind of normal involvement of a globalized economic power. And this was the time that China was uh, um, accepted into the WTO. And it was a kind of welcoming of a newly admitted member to a more or less stable international kind of leo, uh, neoliberal trading order. That this is what we would expect economy this big to do is that they would pursue these interests in different places, and it wasn't seen through this through the lens of a kind of great power competition. And then you start to see a change. The U.S. starts to see the scale of involvement in Latin America with some alarm because of they see China now as a strategic competitor. How do you think this growing great power rivalry will change the nature of Chinese involvement in the in Latin America? I mean, and 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 a, and a secondary question: Do you think the U.S. will kind of wake up and say, "Oh my goodness, we've been asleep at the wheel here. We we need to address these kind of issues." It, will Latin America become a kind of playground of this great power conflict? Do you think? I think it's in it to some extent it already is. Uh, I mean, when Pompeo goes around uh, the, the, to the different capitals warning about debt trap, hmm. uh, saying Chinese lending, it's a recognition that Chinese lending has has made significant inroads into um, uh, the economies there, uh, and certain economies, Panama uh, was one case, and and Argentina uh, another one. There, there there were real alarm bells. Uh, going on in 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 that administration in Washington, and yeah. once the tap has been opened, it's I think that this is um it's a it's probably the only area of bipartisan um, mm. foreign policy terms uh, uh, bipartisan support. There's there is you know the Biden's crowd is, is is as concerned about China as the as Trump and or any other Republican crowd. So I think it's 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 with us. It's here to stay. Yeah, I don't well, think that it's going to be unwound. Be, and and the other thing I would say back to the era of complacency, if you can put it that way, it's um. I mean, you have to remember while while China is, while uh, somebody might be saying, oh, this in the uh, in the Bahamas there's a big investment in a port or air uh, airport and port facilities and uh, investment in a massive hotel and things like that. And maybe this is, maybe we should look at this differently. Maybe it isn't just commercial mm. um, or holds implications that are outside of the commercial. You have to remember that the United States is the recipient of, of massive amount of, uh, of Chinese investment itself. Yes. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it seems difficult at that stage to, to distinct, to, to raise the alarm. If that's what you wanted to do, if that's what you wanted to see. Uh, how it to be uh, how it mm. should be seen uh, when in fact in in Des Moines Iowa there's some you know a factory has been open or in yeah. California there's a I don't know some, some purchase of farmland of kind of equity share in some some agricultural business or something so I think that it took it took both the uh, you know a th rethinking what was happening in the United States to to spill over into a reflection. Uh, and to securitize what was going on uh, in, in in China Latin America relations, and and 
in addition to that kind of in some way hypocrisy you also have the situation if if pompeo comes and hectors a country saying you know don't you realize you're falling into this trap and then doesn't offer any alternative um because it, it's it's domestically impossible to offer any alternative it, it seems to me like you listen to that and you say thank you very much <laughs> um, uh that's not a solution for me i mean what 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 do you want me to do it's kind of like what do you want me to do then what you know what are you saying what's what are the alternatives you want to lay on the table and then we can talk but if you don't have any alternatives to lay on the table i don't know why you're here other than just to tell me what's obvious yeah i mean <laughs> i've heard i have heard so many policy figures say exactly that not just in latin america in africa in southeast asia you know so so you've offered the critique we we share some of those views but uh, there's nothing on offer yeah. so you know so wagging your finger running you know flying around on a little mission to say don't tut tut don't do this you might endanger your interests is very interesting but uh, we're not going to you know do much because you don't offer anything yeah so, and I, I, great, the blue the blue dot infrastructure pro project which came out of us japan i think australia then the Asia, uh, Africa, yeah, Asia Africa infrastructure corridor, and the German. Uh, there's a German version of the same. I, I mean, it goes on and on, and and it's only and what they do is redirect pre-existing funds towards that, rebrand it, and say we've responded. Uh, they're not. I don't know who they're fooling. Yeah. Uh, you know. Well, of course they're constrained by their own domestic polity, and so there's no way that there's political will now, even if the uh, elites recognize what's happening, they recognize that any pursuit of those kind of policies will be a death sentence for them domestically. And so you, you there's not an alignment <clears throat> anymore of those interests in order to do that. Now, of course, China uh, doesn't necessarily have to worry about the alignment of the domestic interest because it has more control over those things. And it's not limitless. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they can ignore their internal domestic pressures, but I would argue that probably they have more control over that. And as an example, I mean, you have a great quote uh, about uh, from a Chinese involvement in in Argentina, and uh, you 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 tell this story. I just think it's fantastic. They they asked the Chinese company, weren't they worried about getting paid given the financial situation in Argentina? You know, you, you, how are you going to ever get paid? Uh, for your uh, uh, for your loan or whatever it may be, and you quoted the the Chinese official of uh, as responding that they invest for the long term, and so they're not interested in getting paid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, these, I think, this ability to pursue relatively long term non financial returns on the side of one strategic competitor. Um, puts them at a distinct advantage if they are looking if 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 their investments in Latin America are seen through this great power strategic lens. Is would you agree with that, or is is that because I'm I'm just a naive uh, interloper here? This is your expertise, but do you, is that is that something that rings true for you? Yes, very much so. I think that the ability to absorb up till now this is where now now risk has entered the equation so i think there's going to be that that that, that factors into it but the law but but uh, long-term investments long-term 
positioning within strategic, what are deemed to be strategic sectors or with important partners. This is the way China has made the gains that it, it ha has to date. And I think that it will be over the longer term, remain important. The, of course, they've scheduled repayments on debt, will be wanted, but they're also willing, they understand that they're going to have to, uh, they, they may have to, in some cases, you know, uh, absorb some, a, a haircut or some kind of uh, short-term uh, uh, difficulties in the pursuit of the longer-term position yeah. they want. So, um, but the, I, the, the loan is a tactic in a larger strategy. Yeah, uh, exactly. So I think that this is this is their words, not mine. So yeah. yeah. All right, Chris. Well, listen. You've been so generous with your time. I don't want to overstay uh, my welcome. Uh, I have a last question for you. It's asked to every one of our guests um, as our as the last question. Can you recommend a book or a play, podcast, film, fiction, nonfiction, serious, not serious, academic, non-academic that you've experienced in some way the last year that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, on the academic side, but a very approachable academic media side, there's a great uh, podcast called China in the Global South. So it's apropos to our general topics, um, and it gives you, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a collection of curated media uh, and in, uh, material and uh, insights um, that's uh, worth worth pursuing, uh, worth worth listening to. Um, on more generally, hmm, I, I'm not doing anything new. I was. Uh, I was looking, I've, I've been reading old books and what have you. I'd say just look at books. <laughs> Remember those? <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, uh, there's lots lots to learn from old old uh, accounts and old and revisiting things you've read in the past. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Amen to that because uh, there's some great feeling when you finish a book, a physical book, and you mm. finish the book, there's a feeling of accomplishment that you don't get, I don't get from any other medium. Oh yeah, you know, the, and then closing it and what have you. Yeah, that's all. right. It's a, so. it's a nice feeling. All right, Chris, thank you very much. It's been a delightful conversation. Great, thank you. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. 